Lack is a loser's excuse for a winner's commitment, right? Or it's the intersection of where opportunity and preparation meet. You know, I would say that early, there's always been this early interest I had in developing relationships. And whether it be with, and it was, I would find people that were doing what I wanted to do and figure out how to build a relationship. Welcome to Diggs Influencer Podcasts, the Titans of Real Estate, the show that provides direct access to the real estate industry's top movers and shakers as they share invaluable insight on how to best navigate and succeed in any market. I'm your host, Warren Dow, founder and CEO of M3 Media and publisher of Diggs Magazine. Self-aware, self-assured, and self-made, Tim Smith is a man on a mission. While his passion for success is undeniable, it's the daily grind and the little things that he finds most rewarding. Tim strikes the perfect balance of humor and humility in his quest to test the limits of what's possible in real estate, and he's only getting started. His name is synonymous with the luxury coastal real estate market in Orange County, with over $2 billion in lifetime sales and leader of Cobalt Bankers' number one team in California. He also makes some of the best marketing videos in the real estate industry, which has helped propel his team into a consistent top 20 ranking in the nation per the Wall Street Journal. Please welcome to the show, Tim Smith. Thank you for having me. You did say something I just got to change. You said one of the best filmmakers. I'm just going to, and I'm not going to pat myself on the back because it's a team effort, but it's the best. Oh, okay. Sorry. We will and for all of that. you that are listening, you're not watching. We don't have enough followers. The content we're pushing out is genius. You got to watch it. We're going to get into that. Well, great. Well, welcome to the show again, Tim. Let's start from the beginning. Are you an Orange County native? I'm not. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ah, okay. Tell us about that. So grew up the youngest of five, grew up behind the Capitol, big jazz fan, love the mountains, love the outdoors, moved here February 12th, 1989. I'm a numbers guy and a date guy. There's a lot of dates that I'll remember forever. Been in California ever since. Started my real estate career while I was in college in Utah at uh, Prime Commercial that was bought by CBRE. Spent a year there and then decided I loved real estate. I had really found my match. You know, when you just find it, it's like the right suit. You just never want to take it off. I knew it was my suit. And so I, instead of finishing college out there, I came back out to California because I wanted to not raise or finish. I just didn't, I wanted roots to be here. So I started working commercial real estate out here and then went to school at night. And then I got into residential in 2001 and I've been in residential. All right, cool. So you're skipping way ahead, Tim, slow down. We want to, I'm just giving you like the full snapshot. We can jump back into it. (laughs) That's that's just the macro. All right, cool. I like that. I like that. All right, so let's jump back. So okay. what kind of trouble did you get in when you were a kid? Hmm. Give well, us a skinny. Okay, so I'm raising a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl, and really they're raising me. I'm not raising anybody. But what's interesting about how you parent these days is it's more like, it's not really like a helicopter parent. It's more like a lawnmower parent. And I don't know if you've heard this yeah, before. Yeah, I got two kids. It's yeah. like you're in front of them trying to literally take any obstacle that could cause any pain in their life out of their way before they go there. 
But then if you reflect on your life, it's like pain is the only thing that really makes us grow, but we want to shelter our kids from the pain. So the reason I tell you that is because when I was raised, it was a different era. And I literally, like, I tell my friends this all the time. And I have a seven-year-old. He just turned seven on Saturday. Happy birthday, Bricks. At eight and nine years old, I was out till like 1130 at 12 on school nights scalping tickets on the west side of Salt Lake, which is not a great area, to Utah Jazz games. And I keep on trying to do the math thinking, I couldn't have been right. But I did it for five years. We wow. moved when I was just, I just had turned 13. So 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, I was doing that. And so I think the trouble that I may have got in was not trouble from a standpoint of, yeah, I guess we kind of got in trouble. Youngest of three, you know, I had three older brothers and older sister was really, we lived in nice areas, but we really never had like any discretionary income or money. So I always wanted and was finding ways to make money. And so I had a little scalping, ticket scalping business that was pretty successful. So those are your early seeds of entrepreneurship. They were. And I still remember when I bought my first pair of Air Jordan 3s for $106 at the Crossroads Mall Foot Locker with money that I made the night before scalping tickets. That was a pivotal moment in my life. You're like, wow, this this turns into that. So right. did you ever get busted, though? Did you ever get like, okay, like... Yeah, but like, what can you do to like 11-year-old little right. white kid? Being an entrepreneur and yeah. trying, yeah. And I don't mean to make it a race thing, but it really like a little like... I mean, yeah, it's just yeah. like I was... I mean, it's like more a slap on the hands. But yeah, I got in some tr- trouble that I'm not going to talk about as I got older because entrepreneurship can sure can be looked at as other, other ways in some things. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So what did your parents do for a living? My dad was in the insurance business, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she also cut hair. So that's where you got your salesmanship DNA, huh? Insurance sales? Your dad? From your dad? I don't know. I don't know if it was that. I mean, that's a good question. I don't have the right answer for that, but I think that it was one of those things where I really just wanted stuff that I didn't have, and so I had to be creative. And raising a little boy, it's funny because I think my wife would say, like, it's ridiculous how you're always negotiating with our son. You're making him very difficult to live with. <laughs> but I think it's something he's born with innately, and I think yeah. I was born with that innately. But it's like I was running a little, you know, I had four of my friends. We were all scalping tickets. We would make, I think there was one night we all like we all walked away with like 250 So that's a grand back in 1987. Like that's wow. a lot of money for kids. That's a lot. Right? Heck yeah. So it's like those were, and I liked it. And then, you know, it's interesting because... When I got into college, before I got into real estate, I had one of my best friends like, oh, we need to work construction. This guy will pay us like 13 bucks an hour. And that was big money back then, right? And I remember going out to this little area and we were working this construction site on weekends. And I just remember thinking, this is like the worst thing. I'd rather make no money than have to do this for eight hours a day for 13 bucks an hour. And it's not that I'm afraid to work. It's just like, it didn't make sense. It didn't com- compute in my mind. I'd rather have a chance to make $1,000 in some sort of grind that I was in control of than yeah. do that. That's what got me into sales too. I, I started an insurance sales out of college. I was, I mean, when I was in high school, I delivered, when I first was able to drive, I was delivering pizzas. Yeah. And I remember begging, you know, for a raise and I got like 15 cents an hour. It was like, I like made it to like five dollars and fifteen cents, you know. And I was like, "Whoa," you know. Yeah. But it's still, it's like those early seeds are like, I want to be in control of that equation, not 
someone else. But let's go back to where, where did you go to school? So college? Or, yeah, college. Yeah, so college I went to. I started a school, a college in Utah. I went there for a year, and then I came back here, and I transferred to Cal State Fullerton. Okay. And I literally went at night, and I got my degree. And I don't mean to poo-poo education, but I really have some strong feelings about academic obsolescence. I have some strong feelings about how some of the greatest people get put into the system, and that system really stifles any originality. It stifles yeah. innovation, entrepreneurship. So some of the people that I think could make the biggest impacts and differences never really get out of the harbor, if you will. So how are you going to deal with that with your own kids? Well, so I'm going through that right now. We're I mean, literally, is it going to be college or no college? Or well, the, we're or, literally dealing with it right now because yeah. we're in private school, which I promised I would never do. And it's like I can already feel in the, the infancy how they really want you to fit like this style. And See, when yeah. people that are outside thinkers or outside the box... They're really, it's one of those things where that's where kids are impressionable. Yeah. And if they don't have the confidence to trust their own voice, like they may never really nurture that. And I think the thing I'm so grateful for, I was kind of a free range kid. Like I really feel like that. And I think that like right now it would really be borderline. I mean, that's dangerous. Like you can't let your, I would never let my kid do something like what I used to do. Like uh, coming home at 1130 on a school night. Right. Right. Like in like, I didn't just a totally different paradigm, but I'm so grateful for the latitude I had because it really, you know, the, the seeds in my opinion of greatness are cultivated within those experiences. And I had those experiences and I'm really grateful for them, you know? Very cool. So, okay, let me ask you one last little question about youth. Did you, when you were growing up, did you have any like early career aspirations like, hey, I want to get into this profession or that profession? Or did you just know you were kind of bouncing around with this entrepreneurial sort of nature? So there's two, it's, it's funny because I don't think, and I've done a few of these, I'm becoming more aware of my path now that I watch my son's path. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I remember as a kid, I always wanted to be out making friends with people that were older and doing stuff to the extent like at one point, one of the guys that played for the NBA or for the Utah Jazz would come pick me up before the basketball camp and drop me off. Like so unusual mm-hmm. that, you know, a 25, 28 yeah. year old was picking up a kid, taking him to a basketball camp. But my son's like the same way. Like he like is attracted to the people that are older doing, and he's just like, dad, can I go with them? And I'm like, ah, I don't think so. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. about that. So there were some really early seeds that were cultivated for entrepreneurship. And there was a lot of confidence. It's like, if I didn't have the money, if I didn't know a way to get something, I'd find one. Mm-hmm. And like, I've always said in my group that, you know, they always say no until they say yes, but it's that way with anything in life. It's like when there's... A door closes. You just have to look for the window. And I still remember the first time when this really was a lesson. Me, Brandon Adams, and Ralphie Cunningham finished basketball practice, and we were like third or fourth grade on the west side. Our ride didn't come, and so we walked over to the Salt Palace, and we're trying to figure out how we can get a jazz game. And in those stadiums where it's snowy, they have like – the outside area where you can go in, but then you still have another area you have to give them the tickets so that the people outside aren't getting cold. So we could get into the stadium, we just couldn't get into the arena. So we were just walking around in circles looking for open doors, looking for open doors, and they both come out saying, we're not gonna get in. I'm like, well, what else are we gonna do? 
So we just kept on walking around, looking. And then all of a sudden, some guy was running in late with two kids. He's like, hey, do you guys need a ticket? We're like, yeah. So he gave us a ticket, and we looked at the ticket, and it was a floor seat. And I don't know what floor seats were then, but we w- immediately walked out, scalped the ticket, and then bought three tickets and went. And it was like this huge, like, like who thinks about going to a basketball game without tickets? You just don't. You don't have tickets, you don't go. So that was like an early lesson. And sometimes, even though it's natural for me to, you know, when there's obstacles, look for another way, I remember that lesson and I, I really challenged myself, set myself up to, or, you know, set up experience that will cause me to grow because I know where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And my son just has it. And we talk That's about awesome. it all the time. I'm you like, know, hey, Brixton, the thing I love about you is when when you can't figure something out or you can't get what you want, you're always trying to find another way. And that can be a exhausting thing for a parent, but I love that about him. That's a great story. And and some people would say, oh, you're Tim's a lucky guy. That's his luck. You know, he just, you know, it's not. You create your luck. You created, you created the opportunity for that to happen. Right. It's like the saying, luck is a loser's excuse for a winner's commitment, right? Or it's the intersection of where opportunity and preparation meet. The second part was the question that you said, you know, I would say that early, there's always been this early interest I had in developing relationships and whether it be with, and it was, I would find people that were doing what I wanted to do and figure out how to build a relationship. And I grew, I learned very early that the best way to connect with somebody is just to ask them to be interested in their story. And when they're, when you're truly genuinely interested in people, they want to share and they want to reciprocate. Yeah. And so in sales, like I know sales can seem so complex sometimes and like you have all these techniques and I'm all about strategies for sell and how to do better and scripting and role playing. But at the end of the day, it's a relationship and I'm truly genuinely interested in people. And when you're interested in people, it only helps cultivate a sell. I'll give you an example. When I was first in my early real estate career in California, I still had that same thing. I had to make money. I had to pay my bills. I didn't want to take out student loans. So I put on a list, kind of, if you go back and like, it's really kind of think and grow rich, all the things I wanted in a job, right? And so I wanted to work summers and weekends. I wanted to make what people would make full time. I didn't really have the time with school to go and start really cultivating or cold calling. So I wanted to have warm leads and I put all these things down and I literally said, I want to make six figures, right? As a sophomore in college while I'm working, you know, an internship, making no money in real estate. And one of my friends from high school calls me, he's like, Hey, what are you doing? Come and interview with me. And I'm like, I don't want to sell pool fences pool safety barriers like come on like I'm not doing that right because you always have that idea this is how I want to make my money but if you're really clear on your intention and you're open not attached to the outcome but open to the outcome so I interviewed with him I'm like this is interesting so basically he had the largest pool safety barrier company in California and they basically set up all of the appointments for their sales reps. Hmm. In the summers, it was super busy. You'd go on five a day. And on the winters, you'd work weekends. And I'm like, so what started out as like resistance, and this is why like, don't be attached to the outcome, be open to the outcome, right? Because you never know. 
I got really intrigued and I'm like, well, what are your, so then I started saying, well, what are your guys making? He's like, and they were making like, these were like all adults with families, career guys that were doing this business. And they were making salaries that they could raise a family on. And so I'm like, can I look at their numbers? Like, yeah, sure. We were like, you know, one of my best friends. So we started looking at his numbers and I started thinking, okay, if they go on 30 appointments per week and I started doing the math, that was the only thing I was ever good at in school math and simple math and maybe more complex math. But I realized if I was above average, I was going to make somewhere above 80 grand a year and work the schedule I wanted. So I started doing that and it was fantastic. It was like exactly what I wanted, 30 appointments. But think about this. I'm an impressionable kid that's trying to figure out what I want to do. And I have 30 appointments a week with people that have kids in a pool and that want to put a safety barrier on. Mm -hmm. Right there, you're like layering, like these are kind of interesting people. Yeah. And so I took this as an opportunity or a, a education for me to interview people of what they were doing. And the, you know, a couple of funny things, one guy, that I just sold a house for last year. It was a record in Shady Canyon. I met 24 years ago when I sold them a pool safety barrier. Full circle. That's It's like crazy, right? Crazy. But going back, I forget the question that you were asking. I got plenty more. Don't worry. No, but what, what brought me to that question? <laughs> just early career as a youth aspirations. Like if you had any really... So I, I don't remember my point. Maybe I'll come back to it. But anyway, so that was a really interesting thing. But like setting the intention, getting it... And then that was a fantastic career for me to do until I got through this. Oh, I remember. I was talking about sales. Yeah. So I learned, like, as I was truly interested in their story, I always got to sell. And so the average guy was, like, closing 40%. I got up to 60%. You could play with your commissions. But I learned that, like, the key to closing the sale for me is if they would tell me about their life and their story, every time they would buy it from me. Now, sometimes they'd grind me and I'd have to match, but it was like there was this rapport. And so I learned from a young age that like developing relations is listening and really caring. And we're in the service of people no matter what you do. And when you are hashtag like service squad, whatever, that's truly how you can get what you want in life. Yep. And it's helping others, you know? Indeed. And Jay Abraham has this whole the preeminence strategy. I love Jay Bram. He's, have you heard of Jay? Of he's, course. Yeah, absolutely. He's got a great saying. He says, if you want to be interesting, be interested. And it's another another way of, of saying what you just said over and over, you know? And if there was a billboard, it's like literally the billboard should say, to get what you want in life, whatever that is, go help others get what they want. And yeah. I guarantee you'll get what you want. Absolutely. You know? So let's go back into, or we, let's start. How did you get into real estate? We we touched upon it, but like, when did you officially start selling real estate? When did you get your license, and when were you like official? So, so I, I I mean I don't know if there's ever an official start date, right? But I I worked at two commercial brokerages fairly unsuccessfully, but still. And the lesson I would say is there's so many people that are getting into real estate. Real estate's not a part time job. Nothing's a part time job. It's like outliers. Anything you do for 10,000 hours, you become an expert. The quicker you can expedite that, the better. So if you're thinking about getting into real estate, just drop everything, burn the ships, and do it, right? If that's Or whatever it is. It's like there's something about yeah. the commitment, right? Yeah. It's like the, like the movie with Tom Hanks. What was that movie? Forrest, Forrest Gump. Gump. Yeah, everything yeah. he did, he excelled at because he would just commit to it. There's some principle of that in life. But it's like... So I kind of stumbled around in commercial real estate selling pool covers. And it was kind of tough to get really motivated when I was making like 180 to 200 grand a year selling pool covers, working 
30% of the time, but I liked it and I saw myself long-term into it. So I got serious about commercial when I finished college. And then we had a client and my brother at the same time that both had houses they wanted to sell. And I was kind of intrigued. And I think honestly, when I was selling a pool cover one time, I went to an appointment in Palos Verdes and I'd love to go back and figure out who this was. That's my neck of the woods. And I was literally went to an appointment to meet with somebody. I remember at the time it was probably late 90s. This young guy drives up in like a, a Chevy Yukon, which was like the cool car. And he was the realtor on the house and they were selling it. And I remember seeing him thinking, hey, I like that. I like his style. I could see myself doing that. And I just remembered that for the first time right now. So I'd love to know who that is. So if you're listening and you're there, I remember you. Do you remember that his was, name? I don't. Did you? Okay. No idea. Late 90s. So, so anyway, so I had those two opportunities and I was in commercial and had some experience with commercial. And when I went to talk to my broker, hey, do you care if I do some residential deals? He's like, no, go ahead. So I did them and I just fell in love with it. Like I literally, there were so many things about it that fit me. And I think that we could go into a whole episode about what fit me, but it just really fit and I really could get into it. So I spent six months from that time when I did those transactions to jump in. I wanted to make sure that I joined the right person that would help me with relationships, breaking the high end. So I interviewed with a bunch of different agents, found one, Ron Millar, who is still my dad of real estate and he's still in the business and a great friend. Worked with him for two years and then started the Smith Group in 2003. Wow. So the, the first two sales, those are your first two sales? Yep. That we talked about. Okay. So prior to hooking up with Ron, did you strategize and run number and be like, hey, I'm going to focus on luxury coastal? I'm going to well, focus yeah. on- Well, so like- I, I did. And I there was a really a lot of thought that went into it. And going back to that pool cover job, I'm like, what do I want to do? Like I wanted to be in high end. I didn't really have any high end relationships. I literally moved to Irvine from Utah and then from Irvine to Santa Ana. So we had no high-end relationships. So I decided that I went through and I figured out who the top 10 agents were based on production. I went and interviewed with a bunch of them. And I felt most comfortable with Ron because at the time he had sold, he and his partner Kevin had sold the Huntington Beach Pavilion down on PCH in Maine and in Huntington. I'm like, that's good. There's a little commercial, so I'll do that. And so, yeah, it was, it was very well thought out. And the funny thing is, is at the time I had stuck with the pool cover job they had made me an offer, which was, I mean, it was way too much money. Wait, don't leave. Don't leave, Tim. Way too much money. And there's no way that now, in retrospect, I probably should have taken it for the money. But in retrospect, looking over the you know the 20 years forward from that, there's no way they could have continued to pay that amount based on kind of market cycles. So it was the right decision. But I really ended up giving up a lot of money and a great gig working in the commercial real estate thing because I saw myself doing this and I took the time and then jumped in. So before Tim Smith grew, what was your first, how much business did you do the first year as a full-time residential real estate agent? I don't, I mean, it's funny because I have all those numbers and I've quoted them, but for some reason they're lost on me now. But the one thing that I remember, Ron and Kevin really focused on Newport Beach, but I was like, let's go sell anywhere. And I remember seeing some discomfort when I took Ron to a listing appointment in Ladera Ranch, which was Covenant Hills, and then Tustin Ranch Estates. 
And I could tell he's like, no, I don't know. This is a little, I mean, this is out there. I'm like, just go with me. You, like when you say it, they'll list with you. And so finding a mentor, joining this business, finding a mentor that help, can help you not only get up to bat, but get on base is key. And I didn't care if I had to split 50-50 with them. Like it made sense because I never would have got those opportunities. And there were times when both of us would be going out to these listing appointments that I would get that were outside of Newport Beach. Neither of us had any idea what the values were. But it's like when he said something, I mean, he had sold $100 million the prior year. People would listen. Yeah. I'd get the list, we'd get the listing, I'd work it, I'd split it. And it was a great relationship. So note to all new agents or aspiring agents what Tim just said, which is profound, and that is don't go it alone. Associate yourself with people who have been there, done that. 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And, yeah, and I learn. would say, I would say with that really like, there's so many people that get into residential real estate that are short-sighted. It's like, it's a cancer. And so there's just not a lot of people that are playing the long ball. You got to play the long ball if you want to sustain and have a great business. And ultimately you can't do it alone. Like, I don't know how any new agent can compete against me and my group or the lesser group or some of the other big groups, the King group. Stand. You can't, there's no way, nobody's going to give you a shot. So your education, if you're at it on your own is going to take 10 years where if you're at it with a big agent and you, I mean, you always, you get what you pay for. I mean, people only value what they pay for. And really like one of my favorite quotes is you plant the seeds of greatness in the daily grind. No team leader is going to have some magic bullet. If you're not willing to do the daily grind, put that uniform on every day, you just shouldn't be in this business because that's what it takes. Yeah, And you got to like the daily grind. It's not a daily grind for me. I actually am envious of my agents that can go knock doors every day. Like I see some of the Instagram stories of my competing groups and they're out knocking doors. I love knocking doors. Like being with the people, like connecting with the people yeah. is like, I love that. And it's just like, it doesn't make sense for me to do that at this point. Yeah, you have to evolve. And, and, you're, and it's just it like, I go on so many things. listing appointments and I have so many referrals. It's just like, I have too much business there to do that. But I miss that. There's something just wrong. Mm -hmm. There's just it's just raw and dirty. And that's like the, it. that's the building of it all. That's yeah. the brick by brick. So when did you first by sell the your way, home? The seeds of greatness. Mm -hmm. That's not my quote. That's Adam Grant. One okay. of my favorite books I'm reading right now is Original. He's a teacher at Wharton, which is one of the greatest MBA schools in the nation, the world. But it's like great guy, big fan. Cool. I want to write that down before I leave today. I want to read that. When did you sell your first home over 10 million bucks? I don't know. That's a great question too. Like I should have those answers, but it was. But do you, do you remember like when you first said, it couldn't be, it doesn't have to be 10, but like the first I home think, that you, you went know, like, holy, you know the, holy crap. I just sold a five I, million. I mean, it was, it was, it was few and far between. So kind of the way it went, 2001 to 2008, everybody did well. It was like dealing drugs. Like yeah. it, was it was like just... the cocaine cowboys in Miami. Like anybody could sell homes. And like, I still remember one of my high school friends, which I had no business buying homes between 2001 and 2007. But one of my high school friends is like, hey, I got four homes and I'm going to buy this house in Corona Del Mar. It's a million six twenty. And I'm like, how are you getting these loans? He's like, stated income, bro. I'm like, do you even have a job? He's like, no. <laughs> like they were giving people My money God. that yeah. shouldn't. But what's funny about that is I wish I had the fortitude to go back because most of those people that were aggressively getting homes 
weren't smart enough to make it through the downturn mm-hmm. or didn't have it's like i wish i could go back and say hey do this get out save it and then go double down during t- whatever but it's like those were like the really good times and i think i did a fair amount of deals over five and ten million there but then 2008 happened and that was one of those pinnacle points for a lot of agents and it was i was a weak agent like just flat out weak i had a bunch of listings and i wanted to really deem myself kind of the mid-century modern or the modern guy where i had all these listings and it was like about how i wanted it to look but then one day my assistant comes to me and she basically said, you can pay your rent or you can pay me, but you can't do both this month. And I was like, what? Like, like slam on the brakes, right? Like yeah. that's a sketchy. And I used to not pay bills because I don't like to pay bills because it makes me feel rich or poor. I don't like that emotion change. I don't like that. I want to just always perform at the same level. So I would take those external triggers out that could create bad performance and so like that was one of those big things went to a tom ferry one day seminar and i decided i got to get into coaching and i started coaching with tom and it was kind of my born again day and then 90 days literally for 90 days i didn't do any transactions and i had never had a 90 day dry spell before i started coaching so tom like you were a terrible coach at first no i'm kidding it was the times but the real interesting thing was is i was weak And like what would happen is the sellers, if you think we're in this market that's just like literally the trajectory was straight up, then overnight it was free falling. And so what are the conversations you were having with sellers? It's like, hey, you're one of 62 homes on the market in this price range. Like we got to get a more aggressive. The first response was always frustration for them. And at that point, I, I wasn't strong enough to not take responsibility. So I'm like, okay, we'll do this. We'll go do that. I would try to fix a problem. And they would always say, well, you need to market more. But now in retrospect, it's like, no, what we needed to do is have an honest conversation. We need to get in front of the market. And the people that did got out. The people that didn't, I saw some of the most successful people that I knew kind of lose everything. So when you say weak, Tim, you're saying just... Tell me more about because I'm on. So, like, so when, when you say so you were with, weak in without, that so without a, an effective strategy, you're really a weak agent. And I had an inclination and I had a gut feeling that we were going into some very difficult times. So you were on cruise control kind of thing Hence, with your. Not just cruise control, but it's like, I didn't really like, what do you do? And really, I think I wanted to avoid the confrontation of those tough. Con- of and, those, the, and the pain. Yeah. And not just the pain, the rejection, man. Okay. Right? I don't want to be rejected. I have my own childhood issues that I don't want to deal with and not being enough and not being wanted and this and that. So like actually going and sitting in front of clients saying, hey, we either drop the price or I'm out because like I can't do this. We're in a free fall. You either get in front of the market and I take my resources and assist you and you're you're either a seller or you're not. But today we're going to decide if you're a seller, we're going to do what it takes to sell. If you're not, I'm not your guy anymore. And so that's what I just wasn't prepared to do. I got you. Okay. And that's what Tom did. He gave me like this perspective and I went back to that intentional make a list and I started deciding, hey, why do I want to be in this business? I want to serve. I want to serve my clients and I want to make money. I want to make a lot of money. And I think people have this like idea that it's bad to make a lot of money. Like I still want to make a shit ton of money. And it's not so I can go buy boats and yachts. It's so I can have freedom to do what I want to do, so I can buy rentals, so I can give it back to Miracles for Kids, Crossroads, the wooden floor. Like, I want to make an impact. And it's tough to do that when you can't even pay your bills. 
or you're strapped. Like I see it with the charities that we're a part of and I want to make a shit ton of money and I want to make an impact and I want to leave a difference, but I just wasn't strong and I had a hard time. And so getting into coaching and reframing, and I still remember because basically we went through this. And Tom was new in his career. I don't think Tom had all these great solutions. I remember we were sitting there and he's like, well, let's go through your clients. And I don't know. I think at the time I probably had 25 listings. We went through my client list. And I think when we basically just like, a, a, I mean, this is just, this is not rocket science. It's like 25 listings right now. How many of those sellers are real sellers? I think there was like two. So what are we going to do about it? And I'm like, I don't know. We're just going to hope the market changes, blah, blah, blah. All this, all this bullshit, you know, is, is right. you know better, but you just don't want to have those you don't tough conversations. Yeah, you don't yeah. want to get to the truth. Right. And so I still remember, he's like, we basically, it's like, okay, Fisher cut bait, all these clients. And I still remember when I was going to my first, it, it's like, go through the list, get rid of the dead weight, and then try to find sellers and opportunities because in a good or bad market, you just have to be on the side of the people that are selling or buying, right? And like, and so there's all these lessons I learned, but I still remember going to this door in Shady Canyon to meet clients, to basically break up with them. And I've never been good at those conversations or maybe not good as the word. I've done anything I can, even death, to avoid conversations like that. And in sales, when you're trying to get a yes, yeah. to go and cancel is like, I mean, you don't do that. It's like forbidden, right? So I still remember going to the door, I get out of the car, and then I call Tom, like, I can't do this. Like, I literally can't do it. He's like, just go in there and just have the conversation. It's time. It's either you or them, right? So I went and sat down with him, and we basically had this really direct conversation, no fluff, no bullshit. And I remember it went so smoothly. We ended up canceling the listing, which was fine, but all the things I was afraid of just didn't happen. And how empowered I felt of giving them a listing, I gave them an opportunity to reduce the price to where I thought it would sell, and they said no. And that was okay, and I let them go. And I know what happened with those people. Those people ended up short selling their house. Wow. And now I can go in there and I can have those conversations. I mean, the thing that I really love about the business now is I don't control the market, I don't. And the market shift, the market's shifting right now. We have listings that are getting no showings. And I felt like they were priced right. And before I couldn't say I was wrong, before I would just keep on telling them things like, we're going to get it sold, even in my mind I knew. Now I can just say, you know what? I was wrong. The market shifted. I thought we could shoot for higher. I love to set records. It was the wrong thing for me to do. But if you want to sell, this is where you need to be. So are you a seller at that number? And they're like, well, no. Okay, so well, do you want to rent it out then? Well, no. Well, then I think we have to talk about how our relationship's going to go because I am in a point where I, I have to be positioned with real sellers. And that's a hard conversation to have. And a lot of times it's a rejection thing and everybody feels weird about it. But I'm in this business to serve and to sell. Yeah, it's a big differentiator because let's talk about the market. That's a great story because it obviously helped give you a foundational sort of level of confidence and understanding of what your true job is in this space, you know, to serve them and to put their, their needs first. And no matter what the outcome, just communication is our greatest tool. Use it wisely, right? For sure. So getting back to the market, where are we at? I mean, we're, we're at the end of a typical 10-year cycle, right? 
We're, well, we're any, beyond that. So I mean, where, where anybody we that can tell you where the market's going is like wrong, right? Because I remember in 2004, I'm like, this can't go up anymore. Do you remember feeling that way? I don't know if you remember, but I remember like, like these stated income loans, all this stuff. I'm like, this cannot keep on going. And it went for another three years. So what I can verify is that we've been on an uphill kind of run since 2013. We've seen a couple little bumps, you know, election 2016. Last year, we saw a huge slowdown, inventory increase. The outlook for this year looked pretty grim starting in January with 45% higher inventory than last year, sales volume down, pricing down. But then we've had three interest rate takedowns. So we've seen this resurgence. We're at or below in, uh, you know, inventory levels where we were last year in my marketplace, Orange County Coastal. That's what I'm an expert. I don't know about the other stuff. So it's still good, but it's like in my gut, in my heart of hearts, and what I know is next year is going to be a tough year. And you know what? Could I be wrong? For sure. But I remember that I felt this way in 2008 and 2009, and I wasn't very good at communicating it. And so I, I ended up, because I knew something and I felt strongly about it and not articulate, I ended up not serving the needs of those clients best because I think I could have helped those people get out and actually have a win instead of the huge losses they took. So it's the same way now. And it's like a lot of things I just know and I feel, and we have a different pulse. I sell from, you know, San Clemente to Huntington Harbor, and we have any given time 60, 70, 80 listings. So we have a real pulse on all the markets. And I start to see little things that are not just triggers or indicators that I think are subtle nuances that are that are really are communication and answers of where the market's going. So, But does anybody know? Nobody knows. What's your listing? You say 60, 70 listings. What's your, what's your inventory level at right now in terms of, is that a billion dollars? No, I think it's probably somewhere around, you know, half a billion in inventory right now. It's crazy to think those numbers when you start, right? Like having a billion, there's like yeah. people in West LA that have over 2 billion yeah. in inventory, yeah. like, like listing inventory. It's like, it's just mind boggling. The, the better question is, is of that half a billion inventory, how much is sellable in the next 30 days? That'd be a good question. Okay. I just ask it. What's the answer? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'd have to, <laughs> we'd have to do a deep dive, but I don't, I'm not sure. So you're known for something in particular besides being successful and who you are. And that's these killer videos that you make. You've been a pioneer in, in the industry really of taking sort of the property video, the listing video, the typical pan show the the features and blah 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 into really a mini movie sort of cinematic experience and let's start with you you once spent 50 50 000 on a video right i think there's been a couple that we've spent we've had some big budgets on yeah for sure so how did that well let, before we talk about that what was the first video that you ever did at the time like there was something i always had about film and video like i've just always loved it and i'm always searching out for like a unique selling proposal a competitive edge right like i'm always looking for a competitive edge and i i mean the one thing that i know in my heart like i know this that there's nobody that can really service clients like i can like we can when we're performing on all cylinders i get that not every transactions going to be the same, but we really are great at what we do and we're more interested in the clients. So that assumption has really helped me 
What does in, that mean? In my Mark, business, what is that exactly? Just is everything that marketing from what, what soup are, to nuts? What are the cylinders though? So, are they all marketing? So I cylinders? would say the three buckets are number one outreach. Like what is outreach? And I knew that film and video was going to be the future, and that was ten years ago when we first did it. And the reason that we started doing it, we had some connection to some people in L.A. But the films, you know, I got in a helicopter and flew around and did this because I thought, hey, this is interesting. It's an interesting brand. We had these connections, great friends that helped us, but we just couldn't deliver them fast enough or cost effectively enough to make it work. And so we, you know, we do these things and it takes six or eight weeks to deliver. Well, you know how a seller is when they want to list their house. They want to film in six to eight minutes, right? So like that didn't always work. So just over the years, we've just cut our teeth and figured out ways to create content and deliver. And now it's like we have like these systems, you know, the three buckets are number one outreach or marketing. So anybody can create great content. I don't think it's as great as ours. Anybody can create films. I don't think they're as creative. I don't think they are done as well. Like if you look at the just the the film quality that we're doing with the cameras we're using, nobody in our space is doing it. For all you film buffs that aren't watching, I want you to watch and give critique us. But creating the content is like outreach 1.0. Getting it out is 2.0. And not only does that take expertise, but that takes huge resources, both money and human resources. And I would say that 90% of my competition even if they were willing to do it, they couldn't figure out how to do it effectively. And I mean, it's really been a process because when we really started doing some of these digital solutions, because we were, you know, what really happened is we were creating these films that I felt like we should have millions of views on and nobody was watching them. So I'm like, well, how do we get it in front of people? So we started just looking at all these different solutions, which costs money and takes time. And then we started finding some solutions. I still remember one day we we're looking at the analytics and we went like a hundred times more visitors to our site within a couple of days with these digital solutions. And then a thousand times. And I was like, whoa. But what was weird is the phone wasn't ringing. So I'm like, wait a second, we're getting, you know, we've gone a, a hundred or a thousand X on visitors and views, but we're not getting any real leads. Like, and I'm spending all this money to do it. And you're going as a businessman, if like, there's no ROI, you can't do it. But then I started looking at it and it started with views and then they re-engaged. So then I realized, well, these aren't leads that are going to call you always. Right. So you need to have an in-house sales team that's catching and pitching. So that costs money too. But, you, but I look at it more like this, Tim. I look at it more but like... But this is an important key because it's like this all evolves. And so I could have stopped and said, I just can't afford it. Or I could have, well, there's another hurdle. All these leads that are coming in, they need to be incubated. They need to be cultivated. Well, I need to have an in-house sales team. So we have people pitching and catching. Well, now we have all of those things and nobody else has them. So we are actually extracting and finding buyers for our properties that are outside of our marketplaces and bringing them there. And we're doing it through digital solutions and through great marketing incubation and sales to get those you know, we call it big fish, light tackle. We're trying to get big fish on light tackle and we're trying to do it in a way that's scalable. Yeah. So, so that's the first part is the outreach and the marketing. And that's one big bucket. And that takes expertise, money, time, energy, all of the above. And then the second piece to that is how our team functions. You have to have a team that supports that. And it's like, I am very clear. I, I don't remember what year it was in 2000. 
14, 15, 16, the Wall Street Journal came out and basically this huge like shift. It was like this inflection point. I don't even know if that's the right word for it. But from one year, from last year, this year, teams grew by 42% in sales volume and individuals shrank by like 19%. So there's a 63% delta in growth. And it was clear because how can a solo practitioner agent compete against me when we have 12 salaried admin executives helping to support us on our listings and in-house sales team and outbound sales team showing agents all these things? They just can't. I mean, it's like a team always outperforms the individual. And that was the year that the data supported it. And now it's grown to even show that the statistics are effective teams will always outperform an individual. So the paradigm has shifted. And do you think it will only accelerate, right? It's not going to go back. Well, I think there's people that are going to have business and continue to run their solo practitioner business. But will they be growth? No. Will they be next decade? Will they still be dominating? Not a chance. Like there's no chance. You can already see that companies are buying teams instead of buying brokerages. So it's like, you know, you can see when when there's an ROI on it, that's when you know that's the direction it's going. And having an effective team and an effective culture is not an easy thing. It's just not. It's like very challenging, and but it's fun. It's like a family, you know? I thought real estate was easy, Tim. You just get your license and you start making like five million bucks. Totally. Make cool videos and For it's sure. game over, right? <laughs> isn't it that isn't that how it works? For sure. <laughs> yeah. So let, we got to talk about the Duffy video, like because yeah. it's worth talking about. How did you think of that? How, how did that come I up? I mean, so really, I don't want to take credit where credit's not due. So we have a crew, a creative team that they're always coming up with ideas. But the one that's really doing it is my partner in the production company who makes legitimate films and movies, and he's a great friend. Um, he just, I mean, he's the king ideas. He's the creative. And it's just like, we come up with these ideas, we vet them out. Like we were talking about a listing right now and we have these couple ideas and I just was laughing at how funny these ideas are. But like now we're getting hundreds of thousands and millions of views, but I feel like my Instagram based on the content, I mean, we're pumping out some great content and I feel like if people saw, we should have a hundred times more Instagram followers than we do because I see what other people are doing, but the ideas are just amazing. And they're not cheap. Like who spends $20,000 on a listing video? Right. Like I just like love to do it. I love to make my sellers happy. We love like when people, you know, I still remember one of my class in college when marketing is done effectively, selling becomes superfluous with great content, snackable, shareable content, great films it really is the case. Marketing becomes or selling becomes superfluous when marketing is done correctly. And so the Teach Me How to Duffy film, the whole goal, the whole job of that film is we wanted every agent in the United States to know about that house. And you think, well, why do we want that? Well, because we know that the buyer that's going to be willing to pay the most for our properties here are not from Newport Beach. They're not from our Orange County. Some of the times they are, but it's going to be somebody from nationally or internationally. So how do we create this splash? And I still remember in that first weekend when I was getting emails and texts, and I was really nervous to launch it because the seller really didn't know what we were doing. And it was it was unconventional to say the least. Yeah. And it was met with a lot of really strong opinions. 
like strong where I couldn't sleep at night and strong where love hate the seller was like, what's going on? There's two people in their duffies on my dock at two in the morning blaring. Teach me how to duffy yelling, Tim, come out and dance with me. (laughs) So it felt like, you know, it was like, is this going to be a success or failure? But then what happened is like that first weekend, I think the Wall Street Journal picked it up. New York Post picked it up. And then it just went from there. We had over 50, I think it was 55 or 56 national and international media sources that picked it up. Everybody in real estate knew about it. You know, I've gone on to talk a lot about doing out-of-the-box marketing. And it really worked because in the end, on a 10-month transaction of a record sale, two buyers were competing. So a multiple offer situation, which we try to guarantee, which you can never do, right? With great outreach, it gives you a better chance of getting multiple offers. Both buyers, not from California, both buyers were connected to the house through that film. Yeah. And if you remember the film, it had very little to do with the house. Right. Yep. No, it's a great, it's a great marketing story. I can go on and on. I'm a marketing guy. I love marketing. I can go on and on. But what's interesting about that, it's not so much will the video ROI or what was the sort of response and how many views and all that. You know, it, these are all investments in your brand and in building Mindshare, and all roads lead back to the Tim Smith group, right? So it's less, in my mind, how these things are performing individually and what's happening sort of tertiary to the actual asset performance. It's more about the bigger, the more these videos, you put out like 200 of these videos, you've got like over 6,000 subscribers on YouTube. You're known for this now. This is your signature channel. This is completely propelled and accelerated your brand. You know what I mean? So it's a branding play more than a let me be a video real estate guru play right yeah i mean for sure i mean it's definitely done a lot of that but one of the things i was just thinking when you're saying it's like i want to have six hundred thousand followers and it's not like an ego thing but it's like well, what wh- are you waiting for man i know I mean, hey 2000 bank day bank day that's <laughs> 2020 bank day bank day that's going to be my year it's going to be my family's year, my kiddos' year, but it's going to be living our best life. And when you're living your best life, that means you're doing great things for people. You're doing all the things that you want to do. You're breaking out your best ideas. You're drinking your best wine, taking your best trips, taking your big risks. But I would just say, like, it just goes to show, because I don't want to say that. And there's so many people that are creative and so many great people on my team and in the industry, but it's just a fun thing. And there's just like so much opportunity if you're willing to take a risk, whatever it is in life, right? So many people are just stuck and they get stuck for whatever reasons. And it's like, you know, I read a book, The Untethered Soul, which I'm a huge fan of, personal growth, but it talks, there's a chapter, it talks about how we're all born and we all have kind of this thorn in our flesh in life. And this thorn in our flesh, we can, we have two options in our life. We can either build cushioning and protection around it so that nobody touches it to create pain in our life. And then we'll even go through like extensive exercises to build apparatuses around and everybody in our life's got to make sure that nobody touches this thorn that's going to create any discomfort. And then we're willing this around and we build a life trying to avoid pain where the other option is just pull out the thorn and like nobody's going to die from the pain or the discomfort. And so many people are stuck personally. They're stuck in their business. They just don't know how to get out of their own way 
And I just don't think it's as complex. And I think that a life is waiting for each of us if we're willing to really look at that and be honest and open about where we're at and take big risks. And I want to take huge risks and I want to make bigger films. I don't want to be a one hit wonder. And I want to have, I mean, there's just so many things that I want to do. I just passed my 44th year, which feels kind of like halfway for me, even though I'm going to live to be 126. Sure. But but halfway. So it's one of those things where I, I want to, the next 40 years, I want to make a big impact and a big difference. A big, well, you've already made a, a big impact. I mean, you, you your team is always top 20, right? In terms of Wall Street Journal, Wall Street yeah, Journal, the last and, probably five or six years. We've been and you, you've been doing over $250 million every year pretty much, right? 500 Is it 500 Well, I mean, the average, the last three years, we've done over 400 yeah, between so, four and five. minor detail, a couple hundred million, Tim. We're right? probably closer to three or four billion, but whatever, it's okay. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's just these numbers become crazy at, at But these at numbers these represent people that we can serve, not just money. So I want to make sure that I absolutely. distinguish that because it's no, a lot of real estate, but these are people we serve. We're servants. Yeah. So these are opportunities to connect with people. So with all the success you've had in this space, I mean, what are you most proud of? If you if you were to retire today and said, what are you most proud of? Like you walking away, What what is that? Wow. That's a, that, I don't know that I can answer that question like effectively right now. What am I most proud of? I don't know. I need to come back to that question. Maybe that should be on the blog post. All right. This will be the, this will be the, uh, (laughs) after take, what do they call it? The, uh, behind the scenes after, I mean, I'm proud of like the people in my life. You know, one of the things that I was really thinking, it's like, I love to have experiences, but I'm gra- I'm really proud and happy for the people that are in my life, my family, my kids, my wife, but just all the people that I work with, my clients. Like, life's about people, you know? And this is a side note, but we as a family try to, like, get, when we can travel, go travel, and we went to Belize for uh, Thanksgiving, which I want to do some adventurous stuff, which isn't always, you know, it's not always great for little kids. But I just remember that my two favorite parts of the trip is one, watching my six-year-old, now seven-year-old son, connect with different people. There was one day we were driving out to go like kayaking or something, and he was in the front seat of the car, and we're in one of those open like uh, Jeeps, and he's sitting there talking to Desmond. Desmond was probably a 30-year-old guy that was driving a sailing tour, and he was explaining every time we got in the car, he wanted to sit with Desmond. That was like me. And like they were homies and like I love to see my little boy being homies. And then the other thing is we were going on this trip, which we were totally prepared and we were going up to Monkey River and we got on this little boat that was crazy and there was two other families and we're going into this storm. We have to take this boat 30 minutes in the ocean up to this river. This is the longest river in Belize that comes down and meets the ocean and we're headed into the storm. And the other two families were totally ill-prepared. We had our stuff on and I think we're all kind of uncomfortable. And we get into the storm, and it's like a torrential downpour. And I'm, like, deflecting my kids. And I look over, and I see this other family that's sitting on the seat across from me. And he was there, a husband, wife, their son, and then his mother. And she was probably in her 70s. And she was literally just sitting there taking the storm, like, with her face into it, closing her eyes. And I just start laughing. It was, like, hilarious. It was 80, 85 degrees. And everybody on that boat starts laughing hysterically. And it was pretty tense, right? Because <laughs> it's like, what can you do? Like, even yeah. our raincoats didn't. And I just think, like, life's about experiences. Like, I want to have these experiences. 
I'll never forget that. And I don't think anybody on that boat yeah. will. And my wife and I laughed so hard and it we left laughed an imprint, about it. Imprint on it you, left yeah. an indelible impression on my soul. So I love to travel and see what the world. So you love to experience. In your career too, what do you think is the biggest mistake, failure? Did you have any like bad, like, oh man, I screwed that up or I really made a bad decision? Or was there any moment that... I mean, I can, I can just think of thousands. So but like it, one thing that I'm just thinking of, the way I want to answer that question is like, you never really want to focus on your failures, right? right. But I'm actually, you want to in, learn. in 2020, I'm going to actually go and I'm going to put like my highlight reel of failures. And instead of having like a support group, I want to have a group that challenges me. It's like, let's just get honest about who we are, our weaknesses, because it's like the more you embrace what it is, and you grow thick skin, you can only grow. And this it's about growth. Yep. And I want to grow. And I know there's things that get in my way. And I think if you ask any of my team, after they said all the nice things that they'd probably say because I'm their boss, I know they all have some probably really good thoughts about how I could improve, how I could be better. If the metrics to serve, what I'm doing, what are my blind spots? Like we all have blind spots. And I have tremendous blind spots in my family, in the business, and so I don't want to like, I don't want to just, you know, I remember I drove this car in high school that literally it made so much noise that I would just turn the radio up so I didn't have to hear the noise. But damn, like that car was going to break down and did break down. It's like, I want to do that in my own life. I don't want to turn the radio up and like avoid all the shit that I shouldn't be avoiding it's back to that thorn right i want to i want to pull the pull thorn out i want to embrace it man i want to move on i want to live that life you know and you can't do it and there's this growth but the untethered soul amazing book well, i definitely want to check it out so how competitive is the oc market i mean we i oh, live in i live in south bay and we we cover you know south bay and, and west side from malibu basically from pv all the way through malibu and beverly hills and blah blah and la in South Bay, super competitive, different markets, but like, how's the OC comparatively speaking? Is it like it's competitive, and it's funny because I, the, you know, I do the daily hot sheet. If you don't know what that is, it's listening. It's like you look at what's new listings, backup pending sold, and I literally look at it. And every time I see a listing that we didn't get, which is ninety percent of them, ninety five percent of them, I'm like, no, no. Or I see guys knocking doors. Kevin Sturdivant out, always looking hip, knocking doors. I'm like, damn him. But it's like, I know that right now that's not where I'm at and we're doing a ton of business, right? So, but it's competitive. And you know, the funny thing is, is like, there's not any people that I compete with I don't like. And I'm finding that like, even though it is a really good competition and it's fun to compete, there's some great agents and there's some great people in this business. I mean, you have to be to be on the top. But is it, is it frenemies or is it like... Hey, we can coexist, but no, I think for, for the most part, I would say 90% of the people in the business, like I, yeah, I'm like, I'm happy for their success. And I couldn't always feel that way. And half the time, like, I feel like it's our business to lose. So when we lose it, it's because we weren't persistent enough. Like in real estate, it's funny how so many people are like, I just don't want to bug people. Like, what are you talking about? Bug people. Like the people that are getting the listings. I have this belief that if I were to call you every day, 10 days in a row, and you didn't call me back, that you really want to talk to me. You're just super busy like I am, so you haven't had a chance to get me back. So it's never going to stop me or deter me from calling you again. And once I get you, I'm like, oh, I'm super stoked. We finally connected, right? 
which may not be the case, which they may be screening me out, dodging me, but it's like change your belief system about stuff because like persistence is the key. And the problem why more people aren't persistent because they don't believe they're the best. When I'm persistent, it's like I really feel like people are going to be doing a disservice if they don't choose me. Yeah. Like I, I give them the best chance to get the most. Every seller deserves to have the highest price and sell the house the most quickly. I give you the best chance. So sellers, I want to meet with you. And agents, if you don't feel that way, well, you better figure out what your unique selling proposal is or your competitive edge to get there because otherwise I'm going to get that listing. And if you, yeah, and, that, and that's a great, great thing to say. And, and agents out there value what you do. Because if you don't, neither will the person sitting across from you. If you're in it to sell and you're a sale, you know, it's, it's not going to work out as planned. Listen to Tim Smith. He's got some words of wisdom and, and call him, right? Anytime for some absolutely some guidance, as long as you're not in his market. Yeah. Coastal, yeah. You know, outside call me of coastal. to co-list or refer. <laughs> San Diego or Santa Barbara. So let's talk about the industry real quick. You're with Cobalt Banker. Yep. You've heard of this little company, this new little company that's been bouncing around called Compass. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Have they approached you? I don't want to get on my bandwagon with this because I've done it in the past. But, I don't, I'm unaware of it. So this is the, new to me. The, the bottom line is I love Coal Banker. Coal Banker has been great for me. I'm a loyal guy. I know that Coal Banker gives me the best tools to service my clients and give them the best results. That's why I'm at Coal Banker. I love our leadership. I love our company as a whole, but I'm all about, I'm a seller's agent. And if I think that there's better tools somewhere else, I'd look at them. I've just yet to find those. The Tim Smith group is the brand, right? So no disrespect to the brokerage, any brokerage, but you're doing the transaction. You're, you're the one sitting at the, at the kitchen table yep. negotiating and, and, right, and serving. How important do you think as this industry transitions and transforms is that brokerage cachet? I think the brokerage is huge if you use the tools and if you're interested in using all tools, if the goal is every seller to get the most or the, it's really every seller to get the highest net proceeds because sometimes you have to spend money to make money, right? So you may have to remodel your house, do whatever, but whoever can give you the biggest and best outreach and the best support and systems is going to give you the best chance of getting the most eyeballs, which turn to showings, which turn to offers, which hopefully can be a multiple offer situation. So I think the brokerage and their tools and their leadership and everything is hugely important to my business, for sure. So could I get that somewhere else? Yeah, I think so. Is it any company that's there right now? I don't think so. Could I do that on my own? Yeah, but it wouldn't be with, I would be giving up a lot to do the same thing. And really, the right like right now, I'm ninja, easy, breezy. I can transition, I can audible because the systems, the support, the company's there. Like, I don't want to take on anything that's going to keep my eyes off getting my sellers or, you know, our clients the best opportunity to sell or buy. So that would be my long answer okay. to a short question. iBuyers. Real G, which owns Coldwell, right? Coldwell Maker. They just got into the iBuying space. Everyone's in it now. Keller's in it. Redfin. And now Zillow, obviously, heard it, you know. Zillow offers, and now I think they just made an announcement this last week. Zillow offers is in OC in LA. 
What are you hearing out there from your clients, or what? I mean, do you I th- hear anything? That, I mean, that's it's, I think traction. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's our marketplace is so different than like Temecula or Riverside, where I think they've been more effective at doing that. I think people are going to come in here and do it. However, we talked about this in our team meeting. Anybody that comes and says Zillow, I'm going to buy your house, guaranteed, I'm going to sell that house for more. Because if somebody's buying it. It's just basic principles of business. If they're buying it, they have to buy it to make a margin. I'm going to be able to get a seller more than they're going to be able to get somebody pay. Now, I used to think that it was every seller's objective to get the highest price. It's amazing to me how few of my clients, that's actually their number one objective. And the reason I know that is like, well, we don't want to do the work. We don't want to do this. We don't really want to put our house on the market. We don't want to go through the showing. He's like, okay, so you don't want the most for your house. Let's just call a spade a spade. So I think they'll be successful, but I don't think it's going to be tremendously successful in coastal, like high-end markets. It's very hard to analyze. You can't do it through any automated, like, you know, assessment, evaluation. evaluation. Most of the people don't know the subtle nuances of why you should or shouldn't buy. I think people are going to get hurt. They're not going to make the money. I mean, I work for a lot of developers that are professional speculators, and they even get hurt. And they've done dozens of projects in these areas, and they're still making mistakes. So guys coming in fresh from Temecula doesn't seem like they're really going to have success, nor are they going to be competition for us. All right. We got that. All right. Good. So enough real estate for a minute, Tim. Let's have a little bit of fun. Uh, this has been fun, though, right? We're having fun? Yeah, for sure. We're, we're digging this? All right. So this is a rapid fire. Finish this sentence for me. If I wasn't in real estate, I would love to... Play in the NBA. If you but could... What's more realistic? Own an NBA basketball team. Nice. Oh, we got to talk about Mark Cuban, who you yeah. sold a house to in a little Where bit. Where when I'm going to own a basketball team? March 20th, 2027. But nice. keep going. If you could invite three people to your dream dinner party, who would be there and what would you serve? Wow, that's interesting because it's changing by the moment. But I would say just like three authors, I'd want to go Adam Grant, Tim Ferriss, and Oprah right now. I think those would be interesting. And then the other one, and what would I serve? Probably something vegan-ish. You know, I don't know. The truth is, like, I'd rather do an activity with them than go and eat dinner. Like, it'd be super fun to go do something together where we all could kind of participate and get out of, like, the, the norms. I got an idea, man. The Howard Duffy, Stern. The Duffy. Hey, um, Howard Stern would be amazing. Yeah. He would be amazing. Yeah. He's underrated as an interviewer and sort of as a just a, yeah. you know, a media yeah. juggernaut. What's a guilty pleasure that's worth every penny? Right now, uh, <laughs> Williams-Sonoma Peppermint Bark. Ooh. Like every year, this time of year, it comes out and like oh. everybody gets it as gifts and I get it for myself. And like, dude, I could you dust I could dust one of those tins literally in a night. <laughs> I got home the other night and my kids were like before dinner and I went and it's like, you got to get like a mouthful to get the full taste. And right before dinner, I'm like literally opening it up like I'm a drug addict and like trying Just, to get the plastic open and hide it from my kids because we don't want to disrupt dinner. Mouthful on those. Like, mm. So that would be my guilty pleasure right now. <laughs> What's your favorite band? I don't have that answer right now. There's just so many, you know? All right, give me one. I like Bozzy right now. I had a little nephew that was staying with me this summer or staying with us this summer and like all his little hipster music I kind of got into. And then I like rap a ton. And it's like, I kind of feel like the guy from The Office, if you ever saw that movie, 
where he's rolling up and he's like literally listening to hardcore rap and he looks over and he turns it down like i like that i like rap <laughs> does something for my soul good deal and where do you live we live in dover shores dover shores mm-hmm. and what describe your home to the single story 2300 square feet decent sized lot you modern know? like it's modern and then we have a place down in monarch bay that's mid-century modern which we kind of use. We just bought as an investment because we we're going to flip it and then we end up staying there. And it's just like we love the single story, mid century modern vibe. And there's a beach club. So we spend a lot of time in the summers and, and weekends down there. Awesome. What do you do for fun? Whatever my kids want to do, man. Like I got the perfect son. He is totally into just having fun. Likes to ride motorcycles, ski, basketball. Like I'm having a great time with him. My little girl, she's a blast, you know, so it's just like we love to travel, we love to do whatever, but I'm excited for my kids to get older now because now my boy is really into the things I'm into and, like, it's super fun for me. What's a typical day look like for you? What time do you wake up? What do you do? Uh, I usually wake up at 5, 5.30, try to get some sort of mind right, whether that's meditation, reading, podcasts, whatever, if you can get some exercise, body right, heart right, and then either do some planning in the morning or have done some planning the night before, take the kids to school, connect with the kids, go work, and then, you know, come home, do the same thing and hopefully plan a trip in between there. Where do you like to travel? Just wherever. And it's like the kids are travel age now. So it's like, we're going to New York the day after Christmas through New Year's, which we're super excited about. We just went to Belize. So we'll see. Like, yeah, I think there's a lot of trips. We're really excited that we could, that we could take. Tell us a funny, can't believe it happened Real estate story. I know, I mean, I know I, OMG. I mean, I have so many of those stories. Oh, this was kind of funny. David Espino and I, he's one of my agents that he, you know, knocks a lot of doors. We went to a listing appointment in San Juan Capistrano and we met this older gentleman. I don't know how old he was, probably in his 80s. And he was giving us the tour of the house and it took him literally four or five minutes to get out of his car. And so then we were doing this tour and we start by going through the garage it's subterranean go in the house and we're kind of going through and i'm like this tour and like literally i'm thinking i I mean one thing i am maniacal about my schedule it's like we only have a certain amount of hours in the day and so it's like there may have been a little impatience and so he was going to reach for the door and i was went to like help him with it but what i did instead of helping him i pushed it further away so he reached for it and as he reached for it, it wasn't there. And he started falling back and he starts going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, no. <laughs> so I grab his wrist with my left hand. I'm like, David, grab his back. He falls into David's arms. We put him back up and keep on going on the tour. And like I literally, through the rest, I mean, I, I almost started crying because I was so, it couldn't have been funnier. And it yeah. was like super, I, I felt bad like this, you know, but it was like super funny, no oh, harm, no boy. foul, but stuff like that happens all the time. But the, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, it was. <laughs> What's your favorite city in the coastal OC? Like a fa- favorite area, I should say. I don't have a favorite, but I could give you a lot of reasons that are my favorite for different reasons. Like right now, I think the trajectory, I've always really liked the peninsula. Trajectory-wise, investment-wise, you've seen that there's been a revival and values have really gone up. I think Dana Point's the next like sleepy city that's going to really take off. That's going to be the next question. All right, cool. What about new development? Is it 
Is it slowing down? Is it speeding up? Is it in between here? Like, is there a lot of new dev? No, I mean, we're slowing down, but you're just going to see a lot of readaptive use infill projects. And with the new legislation, which we could talk an hour, you know, the the starting in 2000. The granny quarters and all that? Well, yeah. So the accessory dwelling units, which is crazy for California. If you don't know about that, call me because like you can literally build two of these accessory dwelling units in any property and it's you don't have to subordinate to the city or to the HOA, which is going to be a problem for a lot of people. And then the rent control, you know, the Tenant Protection Act, these things are kind of changing some stuff. So it's like, yeah, it's interesting. Good deal. So let's get some closing thoughts, Tim. What two pieces of advice would you give your younger self? I mean, there's just like, there. okay, so the one thing would be learn from others. There's a quote, something like wise men learn from their own mistakes. Super wise men learn from others' mistakes. Like learn from others' mistakes. There's a million people you can talk to, take the time. And the other thing is don't avoid like the details. Literally take the time to figure out the details. Do your work. And going back to it, it's just like I've always been good about like kind of the seeds of greatness are really found in your daily grind. Figure out what your daily grind is and just do it. And it's like, nobody wants to get up and go to the gym every morning at 5 a.m. It's just they don't. But the guys that are super buff, they do. Yeah. But I think they'd rather sleep in. Everybody kind of works. But it's just like, yeah. just like get comfortable doing what's uncomfortable. Stop being such a, you know what I'm saying? Like, stop being so soft. Right. Pull the thorn out. Pull the thorn. That's the Pull theme the of the out. podcast. Be honest and put that uniform on and do it. Like, I get it. Nobody wants to do this shit, but do it. I love it. Love and it. like, you know, the one thing that I would say, being with people on my team, we have a fantastic team, but I would say in life, there's a quote that I really like. It's either you're either the problem or you're the solution, right? In life, don't be the problem, be the solution. And you can just see it with people and people in teams, like the people that are focused on solutions and not being the problem and not being the center of attention it's like they're the ones that you want to work with. It's light, easy, breezy, right? And so in life, if you're the problem, stop being the problem. I preach that to my team. Pour, pull the phone out. Stop being a problem. Be a solution. There's so many opportunities for us to look outside ourselves if we just stop focusing on ourselves. Yep. All right, last question. What could you tell our audience that would they would be super surprised to hear about you or know about you? I didn't know Tim Smith. I don't know. I think we'd have to talk longer. Like, these aren't going to be good questions. <laughs> All right. We'll have to do that next one, next yeah, time then. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Tim Smith, for so sharing. So I'll give one more word of advice. Okay. Okay. So when you're making goals, put a date to them. It's just a dream otherwise. And too many people have these, like, just exhausting dreams that they're never going to do. And the problem with, like, dreams and goals is they're never achievable if you're trying to figure out how to do them. It's like the way you get out of the how is you put a date on it. And if you put a date on it and you have the right intention, whatever that is, the world and the universe has a way of supporting you. So I would say to everyone in this podcast, make it a goal today and put a date sometime in 2020 when you buy an investment property. I don't care if it's a barn in Iowa and it costs $3,500, just do it. Anybody can do it. Everything's figure outable, but put a date on it because I promise you in 20 years, if you do this once a year, you're going to thank me. 
But ultimately, there's going to be some headaches, there's going to be some challenges, but that's going to happen whether you buy properties or not. So you might as well be buying properties so that somebody else can pay off the mortgage and you can play Monopoly in life. It's fun. Do it. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you, Tim Smith, for sharing your story with us and continued success to you and the team. And let's do this again soon, shall we? Yeah, thanks for having me. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you found some value. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. Find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast provider. Until next time.